it's a great privilege to be here. I asked um, Jesse this morning, what was one thing that you actually learned, experienced yesterday? She said, how friendly. That's not a Canadian accent. I come from Western Australia with my wife, Jenny. And um, I was the director of Youth for Christ in Western Australia. And we had a really large program because uh, Western Australia, uh, th- that's still booming a little bit from up here, if you don't mind. Um, Western Australia is three times the size of BC. And our ministry was to reach every government high school in the whole state, a million square miles. We would um, get in a little six-seater plane that was donated to us by Missionary Aviation Fellowship and we put a team of five people in and for a month they would fly to all the desert high schools above the Tropic of Capricorn, just reaching high school kids. So Jenny and I decided to come to Canada for a two-year sabbatical leave with our three little children, five, seven and nine. And uh, I knew several things in my life. John and I have a lot in common, I think. I was never going to leave Youth for Christ because we need senior leaders. Uh, I was never going to live in North America. I was never going to study postgraduate studies. I was never going to become a pastor. And I was definitely never going to be involved in the Anglican Church in my life. So basically, every major decision in my life, I've been wrong. So you be careful what I tell you because it may not be right. (laughs) But God intervened in a huge way and we went to school and I went to Regent College up at UBC and I was fortunate to be there during the golden years of some of the great professors, Gordon Fee and Eugene Peterson and Jim Packer and John Stott and, and a whole bunch of professors and I decided that this was so much fun that after the second year because of God's intervention, I had resigned from Youth for Christ and we decided we're going to stay in North America and I was going to stay at school for the rest of my life. Because that is real fun. You just read books and you write papers and you drink coffee in the atrium and talk about subjects that nobody else in the world is totally interested in. Like, who's interested in premillennial dispensationalism? I don't even know what that means, but it sounds impressive. And that's what you do in academia, you know, you... you so anyway, I was just going to stay there for the rest of my life. And my friends at school, who were all younger than me, because I was 40 at the time, um, they were all just, you know, finished their bachelor's degrees. They say, oh, you're not going to stay here forever. I say, oh, I am. They said, no, you're not. How do you know I'm not going to stay here forever? And they said, well, you're going to run out of money. I th- yeah, I never thought about that, actually. <laughs> we just sold our house and everything we owned in Perth to stay at school. And so I just picked the professor and did the course, picked the professor and did the course. And at the end, by year four, I realized I'd spent like $30,000, $40,000 on school fees. I didn't even have a degree and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life because I'd finished with Youth for Christ. So I did a couple of extra courses that I needed to do and got some 
qualifications and I got to know Eugene Peterson who's the author of the message and he was sort of my pastor mentor guide and I, he, he used to tell me about pastoring and I never wanted to be a pastor because I always thought a pastor looked like this. In Youth for Christ I'd, I'd dealt with lots of pastors especially in ministerials and, and ministers fraternals as we call them in Australia but Eugene showed me that a true pastor looked actually like this. This pastor is all about teaching, preaching and administration. This is important. But this pastor is all about prayer, reading scripture and journeying with people. Wow, I'd like to do that. So then I had to decide which denomination am I going to be a pastor in because I'm going to have to get a job. And uh, after long conversations with people like Jim Packer, who you may know is an Anglican theologian and Michael Green from England and, and John Stott, who's one of my mentors and um, Alastair McGrath, some high-powered Anglican, godly Anglicans, I decided, wouldn't it be great to be a pastor of a church that has liturgy as a means to an end rather than an end in itself? A spirit-filled liturgy where you can change it if you need to and you don't use it if you don't think it's right and you use it when you can. The history of the church, the richness of that, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so I became an Anglican, uh, which I'm going to define in a moment. And um, I was in the Anglican Church of Canada for 10 years, and then the, all that stuff broke out, and the Anglican Church of Canada as a, as a national church made a decision that I just couldn't support. And... Um, some of our colleagues here had resigned from the Anglican Church earlier and I was one of the latecomers because I was still training as an Anglican when some of this stuff happened. And I resigned from the Anglican Church and um, the very next day got a license from the Anglican Church of Rwanda. I resigned from the Anglican Church of Canada and I received a license from the Anglican Church of Rwanda. Now, then uh, the Anglican mission in in Canada was appointed a bishop, Bishop Silas, and Silas phoned me up and said, would you like to be my sort of second in charge, my executive officer? Would you like to help run the mission in Canada and, and do all that sort of organisation stuff and, and serve under him as the bishop? Now, I knew that Silas was Chinese. I knew that he lived in Richmond and I knew that if I was going to be his second in charge, I'd be having lunch with him at least once a week in Richmond, eating Chinese food. And I love Chinese food. So I thought, that's not the only reason I would take on the job, but that sure had an influence on me. <laughs> Sorry, Silas. Ministry to the interior. And so, anyway... Um, because of God's leading, uh, Silas and I um, took on this role and we developed a national leadership team. And so basically now we coordinate those churches in Canada who are part of a m much larger movement called the Anglican Mission in the Americas of churches who have decided not to be part of another huge institution but just to be a missionary wing of the Anglican Church of Africa. That's put simply, if the institution is the church in Jerusalem with James running the institutional church, then the Anglican mission is Paul and Barnabas in a boat in the Aegean Sea taking the gospel. 
that's how I would describe ourselves. That's a little bit about my background. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is um, highlight an emphasis in the New Testament that sometimes we miss and, and apply that to what it means to be an Anglican or in a denomination or in a church. So, are you ready for a journey? Get your Bibles. We're going to just flip through a few passages at the moment. I'll give you the context. You'll have to trust me that the context is right. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. This is also recorded in Luke. Jesus is on the road and um, there's crowds of people. I'm sure he always had these intentional conversations. He's on the other side of the Lake of Galilee and um, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus in verse 19 and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like if you're a disciple, he said, you don't own anything. Even animals have a place, but as a disciple, you don't own anything. And then there was another disciple of Jesus standing close who'd heard this conversation. And in Luke, we read there was actually three other three people involved, but another disciple of Jesus, and he sort of was pretty bold. And so he said to Jesus um, in his conversation, <coughs> excuse me, Look, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. That's verse 21. Now, what he meant by that, there was a cultural statement. What he was saying is, look, in my culture, I have to look after my parents. And when my responsibility to my parents is over, then I'll come and follow you. He's sort of making a statement that I have another responsibility before I can follow you. I've got to care for my parents which is a good thing to do. And Jesus responds here in Matthew 8 and verse 22. He said, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Wow. And of course, he was using an idiom there. He was trying to explain, thank you. God bless you, Fred. He was saying, look, You follow me first and the responsibility with your parents comes after that. You can go still bury your mum and dad once they're dead, but you follow me first. The point I'm making here is he said, follow me. Everything else fits into into place. You follow me first. You get that? Okay, that was a question. You get that? Right. Follow me first, he says. And then your responsibilities, all that. Okay. Now, let's, let's turn... Next chapter, Matthew 10. Um, Jesus is giving instructions to the 12 disciples that he's now going to send out ahead of him and they're going to go into all the different towns and villages. And uh, he gives them a a series of instructions. And by the time we get to verse 37 of these instructions in Matthew 10... He says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You're saying, I'm supposed to love you more than I love my mum and dad? 
Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about here. You don't love your mum and dad like you love God, right? You don't make a God of your mum and dad. You don't make a God of your kids. A lot of people put their kids before they put Jesus. A lot of people put their parents before they put Jesus. A lot of people put a lot of things before Jesus. He's not saying you shouldn't love your mum and dad like you love the agape love of God. He's saying that you shouldn't love your mum and dad or your kids or anything like you love God. You worship God. You agape worship God. You do not worship your mum and dad. And then he goes on. This is instructions to the 12, right? They're going out to the mission field now. He gives an instruction. He says, if you don't take up your own cross, and what he's inferring is dying to self, your own self. If you love yourself in a God way, you put yourself before God, then you're not worthy of me. That, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm looking for. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Here's that word, that phrase again, follow me. He says it to a disciple when they were talking in Galilee and now the destruction of the 12, follow me. Okay, let's go now. John chapter 10, ready? John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10, 27. Jesus is in a place called Solomon's Colonnade, which is a portico that's going around the big temple. And if you read in Acts, that's where they used to meet. After Jesus died, they met there every day in Solomon's Colonnade. They went to church every day and taught. And there were some Greek men who had converted to Judaism who were in the temple. They were proselytes and they had heard that Jesus was around and they met Philip who was one of Jesus' disciples, said, we'd like to see the master. We'd like to meet this Jesus guy. I mean, you know, if you'd heard Jesus was in Port Alberni, (laughs) you'd go down to the harbour or wherever he is, try and find out. So Andrew goes to his friend Philip, who's Peter's... um, Andrew goes to... Philip goes to Andrew, who's Peter's brother, and says, you know, these Greek guys want to meet Jesus. So we get to... Verse 27, and um, they asked the question, well, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ or not? Are you the Messiah? That's what everyone's talking about. And he goes on and talks about sheep. And then he goes on, and, and in verse 27, he says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Even to these unknown Greek men, they're talking about Messiah and he's saying, follow me. You don't worry about us, just, just follow me. So he's saying it to people who follow him. He's saying it to people who are really close to him. He's 12. He's saying it to the Greeks. I beg your pardon, I made a mistake there. Um, the Greeks come later on. He was speaking to the Jews in Solomon's colonnade. Did you get that? I made a mistake there. I read the wrong passage. He was speaking to the Jews in the Solomon's colonnade and they asked, are you the Messiah? And he said, follow me. We get to the Greeks in the couple of chapters over. Turn to chapter 12. And in verse 25, 
This is where the Greeks are at, in the, in the, in, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover feast, I mean. And they spoke to Jesus, and he says in verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is, I'm sorry if I confused it, but what I'm trying to say is there were some people that were hanging around Jesus. He told them to follow me. There were his 12 disciples. He told them to follow me. There were the Jews in the temple who wanted to know. He said, follow me. There were the Greeks who weren't even Jewish. He said, follow me. Do you get this theme? This is actually a theme in the New Testament. You notice Jesus never said, lead like I lead. He never told us that we should be leaders like him. He just said, follow me. All throughout the New Testament, there's this concept of following Jesus. In fact, let me tell you, if I ever had a chance to run a leadership course, and I haven't had the chance for a while, but if I ever did again... I would teach not leadership skills. I would teach people how to follow Jesus. The leadership stuff will look after itself. You learn to follow Jesus first. Turn to John chapter 21 for the last reference. This is on the beach now. Jesus has been resurrected. Peter has denied Jesus, you know, before the resurrection. And we come to Peter's reinstatement on John chapter 21, and they're sitting on the beach eating some cooked fish that Jesus had cooked. Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, you know, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And that little interaction goes on. And then we read in verse 20, Peter looks at John, who was really close to Jesus. And Peter says, to Jesus, um, Lord, what about him? Like, I know you've talked about me and what's going to happen in my life, but what about John? Because he's part of the crew. Verse 21, Lord, what about him? And this is Jesus' response. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must what follow me so even the closest disciples who's worried about another guy jesus says just follow me you get a principle of what i'm trying to bring out here that part of the christian journey is to learn how to follow jesus and if jesus goes here then we go here and if jesus goes here then we go here and if Jesus goes here, then we go here. Now, that was really easy for about a month in the new church. And within a month, things started going sideways. Was people getting distracted. And within 20 years of Jesus' death, 30 years of Jesus' death, which is not a long time, already the church in Corinth, the new little church, going sideways. And... Um, Peter uh, uh, and Paul had to write to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth, and I'm sure other places, but it's recorded in Corinthians, 
the church in Corinth had already got distracted from this follow me principle. And you may recall in, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, Paul writes, My brothers, this is verse 11, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What? Arguments in the institutional church? Wow. Well, what's the nature of the quarrel? Paul goes on in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I, I follow Apollos. Uh, another one says, oh, no, I follow Christ. Another one says, oh, no, I follow Cephas. Paul's saying, what, is the church divided? Who are you supposed to follow? Who do you think you're supposed to follow? I just spent half an hour telling you that Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me. And by the time we get to Corinthians, we've got people following Cephas and follow, following Apollos and following Paul. The problem comes in the church when we get our eyes off Jesus and we put it onto something else. Some of the things that we put our eyes on are familiarity, comfort, security. I tell you, if you were a first century Christian, you want to have a first century Christian church, you better be ready to be flogged, to be imprisoned, and see lots of people get saved. It's, it's a tough thing. But in the, in the, especially in the Western church where we have lots of comforts and material wealth, it's really easy to get distracted from following Jesus and getting stuck on something else. Paul says, look, is, is the church divided? The body of Christ, is it divided? Was it Paul who was crucified? Um, when you got baptized, were you baptized in the name of Peter? No. It was all under Jesus. We're here to follow Jesus. Okay, so you've got that premise that you and I, on our Christian journey, we're to follow Jesus. That's our supreme directive. Everything else comes after that. Can you say amen to that? Okay. Well, over the centuries, we have developed denominations. I don't actually have a problem with denominations. It's cool. What's happened in the comfortable Western church is that the denomination became the thing that we followed, not Jesus. For example, if your denomination said, we are no longer going to believe the Bible, they didn't, but if they did, what would you do? Well, you've got to follow Jesus. If your denomination said that we're going to murder babies... We said did in the Old Testament. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to follow Jesus, right? My point is that we have to get that premise established first. If you don't get that worked out, you're going to get everything else in your life confused. We follow Jesus. Now, what happened was, over the history of time, these denominations developed and the Anglican Church developed. That's cool. There's some really good things in the Anglican Church as a denomination. 
you know, we every once in a while, we say the confession together in our church at, at, at All Saints Church. That's really good because most people I know are dirty, stinking, rotten sinners. But we've also been forgiven by God and we have the victory of Jesus. And John said yesterday, we're co-heirs with Christ. But we still struggle with stuff. Now, whether you've got two candles in your church or no candles, or that's cool for me. I, look, I don't really mind because I'm following Jesus. Now, here's my next point I want to make. This is, let me tell you why, how I think where things have gone wrong. And I could speak to Baptists, I could speak to Pentecostals, I could speak to Lutherans, Presbyterians. And I don't mean to offend you, but there is a reason why I got a bottle of chilli sauce in my little packet yesterday. Right? I got a bottle of chilli sauce and a bottle of honey. Anybody that knows me, you got that right. And John said to me yesterday, you've got to watch about the chilli sauce. You've got to take it in small doses, otherwise you can do a lot of damage. It's got to be diluted. <laughs> but here's the point. I think that's what, what's happened in the Western church for anybody who's in a denominational church, Anglican, whatever, independent. What happened is the word Anglican became the noun. It should be the adjective. You think about this. The word Anglican became the noun. You see, when you say, I am an Anglican, or I am a Baptist, or I am a Pentecostal, the whole thing about following Jesus just went out the window. If you say, I am an Anglican Christ follower, oh, that's a different story. I get that. I follow Jesus. I happen to use an Anglican framework to do that when we're together as a body. And if you're in a Baptist church denomination, you're a follower of Jesus and you do the three hymn sandwich, four hymn sandwich, whatever. I get that. But what's happened is, I can't tell you how many people I've met who describe themselves as Anglicans or Baptists. Well, what happened to Jesus? Oh, yeah, I follow Jesus. Yeah, I know that. But which comes first? It's a very subtle thing. And I can tell you that many, many people are offended when I say this. Many, many die-in-the-wool Anglicans are offended when I say that Anglican should be an adjective, not a noun. But it's my conviction that the Bible teaches that. The Bible doesn't say anything about denominations. It says, follow me. So if this church group is going to help me follow Jesus, then I'm going to do that. When I was a young Christian, I got saved when I was 22 on Easter Sunday of 1977, and I was way from the other side of the railway tracks. I mean, it was drug, sex, and rock and roll, and I'm, I'm not pleased to say it, but when I got saved, it was hugely miraculous. And I didn't know about denominations. I just knew that if there was a guy there that was preaching the Bible, I want to hang around him. And so I was in a Methodist church that we became a united. In Australia, we call it a uniting church. And then that pastor finished and um, the new guy wasn't preaching the Bible. Oh, then I'm going to a Baptist church because I knew the guy over there preached the word of God. And then I went to a Pentecostal church. You see, I was a Christ follower and I've always been a Christ follower. 
if the denomination's going to help me with that, that's great. But so many people of the older generation, the, the, the postmodern, the new generation, they are post-denominational. That means nothing. And their problem is they've thrown out all the history. You know? George Santayana, the English philosopher, uh, the, uh, the American philosopher said, basically, if you don't remember your history, you're bound to repeat it. So it's really important to know your roots and your history. That's important too. But what I'm getting at is, where is your identity? Are you a Christ follower or are you an Anglican or a Baptist or a Pentecostal? Let me tell you a quick story. So there's a young couple that get married and they're newly married and they're very young. They were like us when we got married in their early 20s. And, and so the wife says to her hubby, I think to celebrate for our first anniversary, I'm going to cook a roast leg of lamb. Well, that's cool, he says. So she goes in the kitchen, she gets a leg of lamb and she gets a saw and she cuts off three inches off the end of the leg of lamb. Puts it in the roasting dish, puts it in the oven, cooks it. Turns out perfect. Hubby says he's eating the dinner. Honey, I noticed while you were preparing the leg of lamb, you cut three inches off and you put, oh, that's how you cook lamb. That's interesting. Like, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how you cook lamb. So... A couple of weeks later, they're, they're at his mother-in-law's place, her, her, her mum's place. And she says she's going to cook a leg of lamb for dinner. So she goes in the kitchen and she gets a leg of lamb. She cuts off three inches off the leg of lamb, puts it in the roasting dish, cooks it. Leg of lamb is perfect. So he says to his mother-in-law, like, Hey, mum, I notice when you cook the leg of lamb, you cut three inches. Well, that's how you cook lamb. In order to cook lamb properly, you've got to cut three inches off the leg and you put it in the roasting and then you cook it. Well, it just so happened there's a long family and grandma was alive. And they all had a family dinner one day at grandma's place and grandma cooks a leg of lamb. And um, she prepares a leg of lamb. She cuts off three inches off the leg of lamb, puts it in the roasting dish, puts it in the oven. And it's fantastic. It's just perfect. And the young man, he goes to grandma and he says, Grandma, this is sound really stupid, but I notice when you cook the leg of lamb, you cut three inches off the leg of lamb and you put it in the roasting dish and then you put it in the oven and, and you cooked it. Why do you do that? She said, well, my roasting dish is too small. And the only way I could fit the leg of lamb into the oven on the roasting dish was cut in three inches off and put it in the oven. And for the next two generations, we've been cutting three inches off the leg of lamb <laughs> to cook lamb. Did you get a message there? Is the word Anglican an adjective or is it a noun? Are you a follower of Jesus first or are you a denominational person first? It, 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 I tell you, this stuff goes deep. There is deep deliverance that needs to be done in some of this stuff. There are people who've grown, grown up. We have a lady in our church. I believe she's a Christ follower first. She's celebrating her 94th birthday. She started going to church when she was three. She's been having communion for 91 years, mostly in an Anglican church. And for some people the familiarity of that 
rhythm, not for Margaret, but, but for many people, that becomes the God in their life. It's really, really, got to be really, really careful with this. And so what happens is that becomes our place of security and comfort. And slowly and subtly, Jesus becomes second place. Let me suggest to you a couple of characteristics. This is why I still belong to the Anglican mission. Because I tell you, if Jesus wasn't here, I'd be out of here, baby. I'd be gone. Because I'm a Christ follower first. And, but I have to tell you, I know Archbishop Yong and Julia. And I know the leaders to which... I mean, we all got to belong to something. Even if you're independent, you belong to the, all the independent churches. I remember as a young guy, philosopher, I'm going to be a non-conformist. And then someone helped me remind me, I just joined all the other non-conformists out there. That was a bummer. Like I, did, I want to be totally independent, but you can't. You belong to something. Somewhere you've got to belong. I know Bishop Silas, Ed Hurd, your pastor John. I tell you, I know these guys. And who they are behind the scenes is exactly the same person as who they are in the front. They know Jesus. And if they know Jesus, I want to hang around with them because they're going to help me know Jesus better. Not because they're Anglicans, but because they're Christ followers. That has to become our priority. But over the years, we, we, familiarity becomes our God. Comfort becomes our God. When did the Bible ever say that the only path of a Christian is comfort? He will comfort us, but he, there's a reason why he's got to comfort us. <laughs> because you know, only get suntan up on the mountain, you get grow in the valley, and that's where it gets really hard. So let me tell you a couple of interesting characteristics that come from being distracted from being a Christ follower to being a denominational person. This is my experience. If you're a Christ follower, you'll find that people are more centered on relationship if you're an institutional person, you're more centered on programs. That can happen in any church. But if you're a Christ follower, you're interested in relationship. If you're an institutional person, you tend to be more programs. I'll give you an example. Jesus on the Sabbath is a lame guy there. What are you going to do? He's crippled. If you're a Christ follower, you heal the guy. If you're an institutional guy, you say, no, no, I can't do that. You don't do that on the Sabbath. You don't, you don't heal people on the Sabbath. So is your mum or your dad who would get healed? I'd go for the healing. Is your daughter or your son, your husband or your wife needed healing? No. Well, come back next year, Jesus, because it's Sabbath this year. You see, you find in many programs, and I know, I know John and I have spoken about this. We have the similar conviction. If you're in a program-oriented church... The program is the whole purpose of what you're doing. Hello, welcome to our church. Would you like to help in the ABC ministry? <laughs> People become a means to an end. We're not actually interested in you. We're just interested in what you can do so we can run the program. You see, Christ follower is totally different. What can I do to serve you so that you'll grow? Now, if there's a program that I can find where, where you would fit in because you would grow, 
Let's do it. People ask me, what's your five-year goal at All Saints? I have no idea. I know our mission. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Go into the world, make disciples, teach them to obey everything. After that, what happens if a guy with bungee jumping expertise comes to our church next year? Well, we start a bungee jumping ministry. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the ministry is based on the people, not the people for the ministry. You get that? The program is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. How? No, don't even answer this. I, I would say, I bet you, a large percentage of you people have been burned out by programs. Not here, but in your life. They just wanted me to do the what's the name thing and they didn't really care about me. I just get this. It's a program. We're not interested in programs for the sake of programs. If it'll help you grow, then we'll do that. Here's another example. Institutional people understand that the body of Christ is some sort of structure or building. Let's go to church. That's an institutional statement. Let's go to church. Let me ask you a trick question. You ready? Okay, let me repeat that again because I didn't get a response. Okay, let me ask you a trick question. Are you ready? Can you be a Christian and yet not go to church? Trick question. Can you be a Christian and not go to church? Everyone says, of course I can be a Christian. Whatever. You see, that's because you're thinking about Christian and I'm thinking about church. When I say, can you be a Christian and not go to church, you're thinking, I can be a Christian and I'm going to go over there to the church. You are the church, right? We always quote that. We're, well, if you're the church, how can you go to where you are? <laughs> I'm already there. You get what I'm saying? There's a, the institutional thinking. This is the church. Follower of Christ understands, ah, oh, wherever I go, that's the church. Now, the church may gather together. This is the church. Here, right here. Not the building. We could be outside in the park and it's the church. Wherever the people gather together, that's the church. And on Sunday, we get together and we celebrate resurrection. And we do it as a body. That's the church. It's not an institution. I know we use those words, but it's not biblical. Kalo, right? Ecclesia. The church, the ones that are called out. Kalo is called and Ek is out of. The ones who are called out. We're called out of our culture. We're called out of our old lifestyle. We're called out of our, our habits and, our, and all the broken stuff that messes us up. We're called out of that. We're a group of people. You see, if you're an Anglican, you're institutional. If you're an Anglican Christ follower, then you understand you're part of a body. And the truth is, you know what? You can't organize the church. You can't um, control it. You can only participate in it. It exists. There's saints up there, wherever there is. Peter and Paul and Abraham and, and Thomas Cranmer and, and, and all the famous Christians and all those that we don't know. They're all part of our church. It's all part together. When, when we sing hallelujah, they're singing hallelujah too. You can only participate in it. You can't control it. Does that make sense to you? You're a Christ follower. If you're an institutional person, oh, and that's why, matter of fact, that, that's why Jesus cleared the temple. This is not the church. God doesn't live here. <laughs> you get it? It was a very 
uninstitutional thing to do to clear the temple and get all the tax collectors out. Because he's saying God doesn't... He used to live in the tabernacle when you're in the promised land. That's where you would meet God. And then, then Solomon built the temple and, he, and, he, and his presence there. But the truth is God's presence is everywhere. And once Jesus came, that's it. Wherever he is, that's a Christ follower gets that. Very quickly... An institutional person is all about information transfer. Okay, you just sit there and I will tell you stuff and you will learn stuff and your brain will get really full and get really smart. A Christ follower realises that information is a means to an end. Actually, what we're looking for is transformation, not information transfer. You see, an institutional person say, well, no... That's the way. We never did it that way before. We, well, we're not, uh, we are not moving the piano. I'm telling you right now. That is not... Like, who cares about the piano? If you're a Christ follower and you're living in China or Africa, you, not only do you not have a piano, you may get shot if you meet together as a Christian like this. See? Institutional person is, okay, I'm going to teach the passage... And we're going to count the verbs. And don't get me wrong, the verbs and the exegesis, that's important. But the purpose is not to count the verbs. The purpose is to enter the story. When you read the Gospels, you need to be able to smell the olive grove. You need to be able to feel the, the wind coming off the dusty road on your way to Jericho. You need to be there with the centurion when his servant is dying and this guy loves a servant. It's not about information transfer. It's about personal transformation. That's what Christ followers do. We are about being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And if it means we've got to move the piano over here, big deal. That is not what this is about. If we have to move, meet outside, as we would say in Australia, if we have to meet outside under the Coolabar tree with a prayer book and a Bible and a, and a bottle of wine and some bread, so be it. Amen? It's not about the institution. I'm not saying the institution isn't important. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a great lover of history and learning from our past. All I'm trying to say is when the institution becomes the thing that we follow, we've been mis misled, we've been, we've been duped. We're supposed to follow Jesus. Did you know that there are no Anglicans in heaven? There are no Baptists in heaven? There are no Pentecostals in heaven? There are only Christ followers. When you get to the pearly gates or whatever that looks like, and God is standing there. He is not going to ask you how long were you a member of the Anglican Church. He's not going to ask you how faithful Baptist were you. He's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? And then he's going to say, whatever you did to him down there, I'll do to you up here. You get the idea. I followed Jesus. I dedicated my life to Jesus. Come in, well done faithful servant the institutional thinking is about getting it right you know you, you've got to get it right the follower of jesus is more about becoming like jesus 
Ah, no, this is the way we do it. We only do it this way. Sorry that there's millions of people that don't do it that way, but they love Jesus. When I first got saved, I thought all Catholics were going to hell. That's what I was told, and Anglicans were all going to hell as well. And then I met some Roman Catholics who loved Jesus, and that really put a kibosh on. These, are you going to hell? No, we love Jesus. Then I met some Anglican Christ followers. I couldn't articulate it back then. And they loved Jesus. Wow. It's not about being right. Jesus never said, he never commanded us, of all the commands that Jesus gave us, never once did he say, you must be right in your arguments. He did command, love me. He did also command, love your neighbor as yourself. But he never commanded us to be correct. That's not to say we shouldn't have good theology and all that stuff. I get that. I'm talking about being a Christ follower. Well, let me finish. The journey that you and I are on, and I understand that many people who are involved in Jericho Road have really not much history of what's gone on in the Anglican church and stuff like that. And and I understand that. Most of the people in our church are the same at All Saints. We're, We're five years old as a church, a church plant, because I've kept that stuff away from our people. It's not helpful. But some of you have been on a, on a tough journey. Well, tough, that's relatively speaking. I'd say Paul, the apostle's journey, that was tough, right? We've had some hard times, I, I get that. And we've been betrayed and we've been hurt. I get that. We heard some of that last night. But I believe that what Jesus is doing in this, in this age of our culture, uh, uh, post-Christian culture, a post-denominational culture and a a post-modern culture is he's calling us back to be his followers. It's not easy. It's messy. And he's helping us to understand that the denomination to which you belong, whether it's the Anglican mission in the Americas, whether it's a Baptist church, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Your first priority is to follow Jesus. And I would suggest to you that for those of you who are at Port Alberni, you find a guy like John and David, you hang around those guys. If they're going to help you be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, you hang around with them. Anybody that's going to help you be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, you hang around with them. For many people, the word Anglican describes their identity. That's really dangerous. That is really dangerous. The devil doesn't come and just fool you overnight. It'll take 40, 50 years to do it. As long as by the end of your life, your identity is determined by what you do, I am an Anglican, a Baptist, whatever, he's got you. The word Anglican doesn't describe my identity I am a Christ follower, Christian, Christ follower. That describes my identity. Anglican expresses, it describes how I express that. Yeah, I love the colours and shapes. I can do that. That's cool. Right? I, I, I can swing from the fluoros. I can do the smells and bells. I don't really care. Whatever you want me to do. That, that is my, the means of way I express my love for Jesus. But 
my identity as Christ follower. And so when people ask me for a sort of a definition, I say, well, I'm a Christ follower and I express that in an Anglican church. Although that whole way of expression has got to be redefined too sometimes. Christianity is not based on what you do. It's based on who you follow. Christianity is not based on what you do. It's based on who you follow. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, we have prayed this morning already. These are our prayers. And I ask your forgiveness when I have put other things before you, including a denomination, including a prayer book, including how things are done. And I repent of that. And I just rebuke that religious spirit that wants to control me. And I confess before you again this morning that my first allegiance is to Jesus. And I pray with my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would help us do whatever it takes in us. Father God, do that surgery. Bring that refreshing rain. Fill us with your spirit that we might be able to follow you and serve you and love you and worship you alone. We confess before you this morning that we are Christ followers and we need you to help us to pay any price in order to follow you. We thank you for speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.